So we're continuing in Acts this morning as we do this series. It's good to keep in mind that the church has often dealt with this book of the Bible in interesting ways. I was listening to N.T. Wright this week. He is a, um, he's a lot of things, but he's a brilliant scholar. He actually holds the chair that C.S. Lewis did in his teaching. He is um, an Anglican, and he has written a lot of stuff that has been very influential across the world in terms of theology, and now he's putting a lot of stuff out online just for anybody, and it's great stuff. So if you're, in, I'm mentioning this because if you're interested in Acts, he wrote something called Acts for Everyone. It's a small, accessible book. Um, very good. And he was talking this week as I was listening to him, he was saying, um, at times the church has treated Acts as binary, as either being simply informational, like, oh, this is, this is very interesting history of the early church, or treating it as being prescriptive. In other words, we need to imitate and do what they did in Acts. And he said, but the problem with that is that no one today would most, in their right mind, would say, well, if we're traveling from Antioch to Rome, we need to find a sailing ship and travel during the times of the storms, just like Paul did, and stop in all the places he did. I mean, we would think that's ridiculous. And yet we look at some of the other parts of Acts and go, oh, that's, well, if they did it back then that way, that's how we have to do it. And he says that somewhere in the middle lies the truth, that this is, you know, as we've been mentioning over and over again, that the Holy Spirit inspired what's happening in Acts, the Holy Spirit inspired it to be written down, and the Holy Spirit inspires us to say, what does this have to say for us today? It's not going to be a one-to-one relationship to what it said to the church back then, very different time, place, people, but there's probably going to be some connections. So it's more than just information for us as well. So somewhere in between is what we're looking for. As we've been reading Acts, um, just to get us back into the story, because it is a story, and we're going to be talking about that this morning as well, how that fits in here, but Jesus, in the beginning of Acts, is still present, and he's speaking to the disciples, and we see him at his ascension as he's going up to heaven, and he tells them to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so they wait, and then we we get to this Feast of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes down upon these early disciples, and it looks like tongues of fire on them. They begin to speak in languages that all these other people who are in Jerusalem for for this feast can hear and understand and it's, they're talking about Jesus and the good news. And Peter gets up and he shares the good news with all those who've gathered. And 3,000 people join the church. And all of a sudden it's just exploding. So they begin to do this teaching and preaching in the temple area. As well as meeting in homes. And what happens early on is we see Peter and John getting arrested for talking about what they're saying about Jesus. Particularly they're very upset that they're saying that um, the, the religious leaders killed the Messiah. And that Jesus was the Messiah. So they get arrested and warned not to teach in his name, and then they're set free, and they say, we're going to serve God. And then we get this interesting little episode about a couple of disciples in the church as the church is coming forward, and they're, they're giving all of their stuff. They're selling everything and giving it all to the church and saying, let's make sure nobody has any need. And so everyone is taken care of, and there's this interesting episode, a disturbing episode with Ananias and Sapphira. We didn't talk about this in our series But it's, again, a check on us to think, oh, it's all just, you know, great and wonderful in the early church. They never had any problems, right? These people come before in worship to give their offering, and they've conspired together, this married couple, to say, we're giving God everything, but they're holding back some. And caught in that lie and in the presence of the power of the Holy Spirit in the early church, they die, right? And that's, I'm sure, they talk about the fear of God, right? The fear of God is placed upon the church. The Holy Spirit is not something to be trifled with. 
they're learning early on. And then there's many more healings that start to happen. So people are coming from around the region as the disciples are healing people in Jesus' name. Before it was just one man healed that got them arrested. Now there's lots being healed. And so last week we looked at how the the religious leaders arrest all of the early apostles, throw them in jail, and there's this incredible jailbreak in the middle of the night involving an angel. And then they are brought back the next morning after they were found speaking in the temple again um, before the the Jewish leaders and religious leaders of the time. And they were warned not to keep teaching the name of Jesus and just to give emphasis to the warning, they are whipped. And as they're being released, they're praising God for having been whipped because they've been found worthy to suffer in the name of Jesus. This strange thing is happening in the early church. (coughs) And then we find the appointment of the first deacons. So the apostles are finding themselves very busy with all the needs of all the people, which is right, of course, but they're saying we should really appoint some people to take care of the needs so that we can spend our time in preaching and teaching. And so we begin to see how the early church begins to develop this structure. And so they they call some and they appoint them to be deacons and to serve the people and to help the people. And one of those is Stephen. And that's who we're going to read about this morning. This is a rather long section, so we're going to skip a lot of his, Stephen's speech, his, his sermon, which is not to say it's unimportant, but I had to pick how to manage this today. So I encourage you to read all of that at some point. But we're going to begin in chapter 6, verse 8. Stephen, who stood out among the believers for the way God's grace was at work in his life and for his ex- exceptional endowment with divine power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose from some who belonged to the so-called synagogue of former slaves. Members from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and Asia entered into debate with Stephen. However, they couldn't resist the wisdom the Spirit had given him as he spoke. Then they secretly enticed some people to claim, we heard him insult Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders, and the legal experts. They caught Stephen, dragged him away, and brought him before the Jerusalem council. Before the council, they presented false witnesses who testified, this man never stopped speaking against this holy place in the law. In fact, we heard him say that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, will destroy this place and alter the customary practices Moses gave us. Everyone seated in the council stared at Stephen, and they saw that his face was radiant, just like an angel's. The high priest asked, are these accusations true? And what we're going to be skipping over is is Stephen's response. You know, he was accused of basically saying bad things about God and Moses, and so he goes through and he begins to recite the, the history as he understands it, the story talking about Moses And then jumping forward to the end of what he says in chapter 7, verse 51. You stubborn people, in your thoughts and hearing, you are like those who have had no part in God's covenant. You continuously set yourself against the Holy Spirit, just like your ancestors did. Was there a single prophet your ancestors didn't harass? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and you've betrayed and murdered him, 
You received the law given by angels, but you haven't kept it. Once the council members heard these words, they were enraged and began to grind their teeth at Stephen. But Stephen, enabled by the Holy Spirit, stared into heaven and saw God's majesty and Jesus standing at the right side of God, God's right side. He exclaimed, look, I can see heaven on display and the human one standing at God's right side. At this, they shrieked and covered their ears. Together, they charged him, threw him out of the city, and began to stone him. The witnesses placed their coats in the care of a young man named Saul. As you know, Saul will become a big part of this story as we move forward. Verse 59, as they battered him with stones, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, accept my life. Falling to his knees, he shouted, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Then he died. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, we know that your spirit is alive and at work in us today, just as it was in Stephen and in the early church. We only pray that you might give us the same courage and wisdom. Lord, help us to be your people and to hear your voice this morning as we meditate on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Stephen is arrested. And what, what happens after Stephen is arrested is that he begins to tell them the story of God. He begins to go back into the Old Testament story and he doesn't quote specific scripture verses, but what he does is he starts making the connections, beginning you know, with the early um, patriarchs and going through the story, up through the prophets, all the way up to Jesus. He he basically recites the story. That's why it's such a long section in Acts. It was probably a much longer speech in actuality, right? He's telling the story of God. We hear this a number of times in Acts. Peter does this when he gives his sermons. He's connecting the dots in the story of the scripture with Jesus. Stephen's, if Stephen's retelling, what Stephen does, though, is if when you read it carefully, as you notice that he highlights all of the times that God's people were stubborn and rejected him. Right? He highlights the rejection of Joseph by the patriarchs. He highlights rejection of Moses by the people when they made the golden calf he, and the rejection of God in doing that. Right, He highlights all of these points. That's one of the reasons they got so mad because he's making all the connections and he gets to them and said, and finally you are just like them and have done it again. Right, And that's why they get so angry. It's important, I think, that we do learn to see the connections in scripture and to see the story because we know that the story has not ended and that it's our story too. I mean, we call it God's story because God is the one who's the architect and the one who designs it all. There's that proverb that I love that says, you know, in his heart, a person plans their steps, but God determines, their, their path, but God determines their steps, right? So God is orchestrating it all. It's God's story, but we find ourselves in the midst of it. This is one of the things that we like to do occasionally in our missional communities is go through something called the story of God in 10 weeks, where we're not looking at specific scripture verses, but we're looking at the whole arc of the story and teaching ourselves and our kids to be able to say, tell the story as these early disciples did. So Stephen highlights, though, 
a lot of the, the negative points, right? And this is why they get so upset. The group of these religious leaders, they had been angry before. We see this, right? They were angry enough to get Jesus killed, but they took him before the Roman authorities and had them take care of it for them because they weren't supposed to kill anybody. They weren't allowed to. They were angry enough with the apostles early on in Acts with, with John and Peter and then some of the others. They were angry, angry enough to get them whipped and to warn them. Gamaliel had to calm them down, what we read last week, this one wise man in the group who said, you know, because they were ready to kill them all and said, calm them down last week, right? So they've been really angry before, but this is the first time we see them so angry that they become a mob. The religious leaders, I mean, you have to understand that these are the, the teachers, the pastors of what we, we would call the church, but they would call, you know, the, the synagogue in the, the early Jewish community in the holy city. They themselves, not the people, <clears throat> become an angry mob willing to kill with their own hands. Stoning was a common form of mob violence in that part of the world and actually still is, believe it or not, at times. You've probably seen images um, of skirmishes happening in the Middle East where people pick up rocks and throw them because rocks are readily available and an easy weapon to use. Obviously, being stoned would be an extremely painful and unpleasant way to be killed. Nothing fast about it. But it's also a very intimate and brutal way of killing somebody. It's not dispassionate. I mean, you have to be close enough to throw the rock and you're going to see the impact on a human being. The anger that they have, the brutality that they have, in their hearts is, is being poured out. And this is what Jesus had said to them, right? He said on the outside, things look really good, but in the inside, things are really wrong. He said this to the Jewish leaders many times. We even see Paul standing by the side, Saul, this is, his name is both. He's standing by the side and he's taking care of their cloaks. Why? So they don't get blood spattered on them. That's how brutal this is and how intimate this is. You throw the stone and blood comes back at you, right? But what's remarkable in this story is not the way Stephen is killed, but the way Stephen dies. He begins to pray, and that in itself is not that remarkable. I imagine a lot of people who don't have faith might pray in the face of death, right? But it's what Stephen prays for. Two things. First of all, he prays to Jesus, receive my spirit. And the second thing he prays is, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He prays for God to forgive them as they are killing him. And in doing so, of course, he follows Jesus who did the exact same thing from the cross. I think my, um, I think my batteries might be dying on this. You can grab some for me, Jeff. It's flashing at me. It must be dying. So yes, Stephen, he imitates the Lord in doing this. And I want to talk just a little bit about forgiveness today because that is at the heart of the gospel. We see that on the cross. We, of course, see that here early on with these early disciples. 
I'm not very um, good at using emojis in my texting, in my Facebooking, in my social mediaing. We, we all know what the emojis are, right? The little icons that you can use to make happy faces or smiley faces or all those different things. And uh, these emojis, uh, there's an interesting thing happening where there's, I guess, apparently there's like an international body that regulates these things. I had no idea. And there's some people uh, through the Lutheran church who are petitioning to get a forgiveness emoji. And so they're, they're asking for people to give submissions because they're trying to figure out, you know, what should this forgiveness emoji looks like? Because they want to be able to... Um, you know, use an emoji to say, I forgive you without having to use so many words, or maybe use the words and the emoji. I don't know, right? Because like I said, I'm not very good with the emojis. But there's, I think it's interesting. They're trying to figure out what this should look like, and they're collecting ideas, and apparently uh, some kind of a hug sign is really popular, apparently um, some kind of prayer thing, but there's already one that does the praying for you thing. So they're trying to figure out how do you display forgiveness in an emoji, And I was thinking about that, and I thought, you know, that'd be really hard, because for one thing, um, forgiveness, there's a scale of forgiveness. When you think about forgiveness, and we, we really, I feel like, need more language. We need more words to help us with forgiveness. I can remember when I was a kid, being, doing something wrong, and having adults, probably mostly my parents, saying, you need to go tell them you're sorry, right now, right? And I remember saying I'm sorry and thinking I'm only doing this because if I don't, I'm in big trouble, right? And so, I mean, it's a, it's a token kind of forgiveness. I'm doing it because I'm supposed to, but I'm not really particularly remorseful about it, right? And then, of course, there's the other side of it. When you were the kid who got wronged and you're sitting there crying and someone's made to come say forgive you and then say, now tell them it's okay, right? It's okay you know, I forgive you, right? And you're not feeling like you want to forgive this person. You want them punished. So there's that kind of forgiveness. And as I grew older, I have to admit, I kind of wondered what value there was in that. I'm not sure. We need to be thinking about that as parents. But their forced forgiveness is hardly forgiveness at all. It's a, it's a spoken, it's a, it's a kind of forgiveness, I suppose. And then there's forgiveness for a a slight for something minor that somebody else has committed, right? Someone cuts in front of you in traffic and you're angry for a second, but, but then they wave at you and you kind of go, oh, okay, you know, I, I forgive you. I'll forgive you, right? Because they were not, they, they recognized they, they did something mean, right? Hopefully that's what it was and not something else, right? <laughs> so there's that kind of forgiveness where it's, you know, it's not like you've been really wronged, but it's, it's, it's a slight and you say, okay, it's okay. It's okay. I'll, I'll let it go, right? There's that kind of forgiveness. And then there's the forgiveness that's the forgiveness of a debt kind of forgiveness. And I'm talking about like a, a monetary debt, right? When you get a, something that you owe, forgiven. I mean, I've, I don't know if I've ever had this happen, but it's a pretty cool thing. I remember when the Oso landslide happened and all those houses were destroyed, that um, one of the local banks here in Stanwood they forgave every mortgage for the houses that they had mortgages on in that place. Just said, they're done. They're gone. That's a pretty cool kind of forgiveness, but that is a different kind of forgiveness, right? We're talking about something you can kind of see. It's a, it's a specific kind of debt forgiveness. And we, 
use that language in sometimes in the Lord's Prayer. We'll say, forgive us our debts, right? And so we need to, it's talking about more than money there, but that idea that it's something you owe, it's being forgiven. And then there's a forgiveness of those who deserve to be forgiven. So maybe they made a mistake, but they've owned up to it. Or maybe they hurt you, but over time they have proven to you that they've changed and they're not going to behave that way anymore. Maybe they were a terrible person and they've clearly changed their ways. And now they're loving and they're good. And it's easy to forgive somebody who deserves to be forgiven. Then, of course, if we're moving along the scale, there's forgiveness of someone who's asking it of you. Who's saying, I know I've wronged you. I haven't made up for it. I haven't proven that I deserve it but I'm asking you to forgive me. And maybe you judge the person's request to be sincere. And it could be something small, but it could be something huge. You know, forgiving a a friend or a spouse's betrayal is huge. I think that'd be close to the top of the list of something someone might ask you to forgive them for that would be really hard. You occasionally hear stories of family members of a murder victim who choose to forgive verbally and openly and publicly the person who has killed their loved one. I think every time I've heard of this, I've, I've known that they've done it because of their Christian faith. Finally, there's a kind of forgiveness that's when you forgive somebody who's not asking you. In other words, they've, they've wronged you, they've hurt you, but they're not expressing a need for forgiveness. They're not admitting or owning up to what they have done wrong. And for me, I think if we're thinking about a scale and the spectrum of forgiveness, to me, this is the hardest one of all. It's the kind of forgiveness that we see here in this story with Stephen. In the midst of them so angry and enraged that they are casting rocks to take his life, he's able to say, Lord, don't hold this against them. How can he do this? How can we do this? And Acts, again, in the story makes it clear, if you didn't hear in the description of Stephen right before, makes it clear that this is a work of the Holy Spirit. This is not a human effort thing. On our own strength, I feel confident in saying we cannot forgive in this way. On our own, we hold on to those debts that others owe us, waiting to call them up in a fit of rage or in an argument. We kind of tuck them away, let them simmer until we want them. And in this way, they become a kind of poison in our soul. I would be willing to bet that some of these men throwing these stones were carrying that kind of poison within them. Detox has become all the rage in some of the health circles, you know, certain diets, certain things you can do to sort of cleanse your body of all the toxins and all the unhealthy stuff. A detox for those who've been addicted is a different kind of detox and is something very serious. Getting a very powerful poison out of your body and can even be deadly 
if not done in the right way. Detox, if you've been given a poison, like a snake bite, requires something powerful, something like an antivenom that could be given to you. I would like to offer to you that forgiveness in the Holy Spirit is like this. It's a kind of anti-venom for our soul. It's something that allows us to say, even though this person does not deserve, or I feel they don't deserve my forgiveness, Lord, I'm asking you to forgive them. I'm asking you to carry this. I'm releasing my right to hold this onto this, to bring it up later against them. God, this is yours. A little bit more just practically on forgiveness. When Jesus was asked about forgiveness by his disciples in Matthew 18, his disciples wanted to know, well, how many times should we forgive somebody? And Jesus uses this response, something about 70 times 7, that basically just says, you just keep doing it, right? You just keep forgiving them. There's no limit in God's capacity to help us forgive others. Keeping that in mind, I do want to say that forgiveness does not mean to forget. I'm not sure where that came from, and I'm not sure how you can even truly forgive someone if you just forget about it, right? Forgiveness does not mean to forget, or it does not mean to allow people to keep hurting us in the same way over and over and over. Forgiveness doesn't mean that our relationships stay stagnant and unchanged or that we go back to some place we've been before because by nature of forgiveness, a relationship is changed. Sometimes the relationship may be unrecoverable as it was before, the forgiveness and the wrong that was done. But I'm going to say that I believe that forgiveness allows it to become something different. It's not always better, but it can be. And part of what makes forgiveness hard, I think, is that when we're forgiving someone for something that is, is really painful, especially if it's someone who's very close to us, that when we're forgiving someone like that, that there is a kind of sadness and mourning and loss for what was before. Because we know the relationship can't go back to that point. And we don't need to pretend that it can't. And so it's right to be sad about that. It's right to mourn that loss. But I believe that in Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can find joy in what that relationship can become. And it may take time. And it may never be. I also do want to say that when we're talking about this, I think it's so important to point out that if we are talking about someone who is being abused, if you are the person who is being abused, abused. While you may be able to forgive that person someday in God's strength, that does not mean that you stay in that situation. Get help. Talk to somebody. Forgiveness does not mean allowing yourself to stay in a place where you are being hurt and abused. I also want to say that forgiveness is a process. Saying, I'm, I forgive you, I'm, you know, or having the person say, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? And you saying, okay, you know, that is just the beginning of the process. And I think this is where we really get it wrong. Listen, we are not God. 
Now, let's just take that off the table right now, okay? When someone hurts us and we say, I forgive you, at least maybe I'm just speaking for myself here, but I cannot put their sins as far as the east is from the west, okay? God can do that, but I cannot. So forgiveness is a process, and oftentimes just voicing those words, I forgive you, even if it's just to God, God, I forgive them, is the beginning of a process. And if it's a deep hurt, I'm going to tell you right now, you will have to be back on your knees before God again and again and again, saying, God, give me the strength to forgive them today. Give me the strength to forgive them again, right? It's a process. And it requires the strength of the Holy Spirit. And I have to say, so just recognize then, if it is a process, if you are the one who's being forgiven, don't expect the person to just snap their fingers and for it to be good. If you've done wrong to somebody and you ask them to forgive you and you're, you're trying to earn that, maybe you're trying to earn that forgiveness even if you feel like you don't deserve it, just realize that it's going to take time. For them, it's going to be a process too. It's not like it's just going to all end. You can't pretend like it's all over immediately. But forgiveness is not just about others. Forgiveness is also about forgiving ourselves. And I also think that this is one of the harder ones to do because we are able to hold things against ourselves that no one else is willing to. And we're able to hold those against ourselves for a very long time. Sometimes we call this guilt. Sometimes we call this regret, right? The things that we can't change. Maybe when you want to punish yourself, you drag it back up and say, see how terrible you are, right? Forgiveness is also about learning how to forgive ourselves. And this, again, I would say, is something that is going to require God's strength. And even if we confess and we believe that God has fully forgiven us, sometimes we have a hard time moving in that direction. So what do you do with that? I would argue the same approach. Don't expect it to happen all at once. If you're talking about forgiving yourself, don't expect yourself to just be able to say, it's gone, it's done, I'm, I'm going to let it go, forget about it. It is going to be a process, and it is going to require prayer and strength of the Holy Spirit to accomplish. Finally, we're talking about all of this umbrella of forgiveness, all the spectrum of forgiveness, the, the deep, the hard, to others, to ourselves. We need to remember that all of forgiveness is rooted in the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus went to the cross to pay off all our debts, we sometimes say, right? The things that we owe, all of our trespasses, all of our wrongs, all of our sins. We use all this kind of language to describe it, and we don't understand it, but all we know is that it's rooted in the cross, that that act that Jesus did in his death and resurrection is at the heart of where forgiveness comes from. Jesus took the first action, and then we follow Jesus did it first, and then Stephen was able to follow. Remember Jesus on the cross when he looked out at those who were, being, who were killing him in the midst of his pain and agony, and he said, Lord, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And then we pray the Lord's Prayer. We hear as our tradition, we do it every Sunday. I do it multiple times throughout my day, in the mornings and in the evenings and other times. And when we pray that, we say, Lord, forgive us our sins or forgive us our debts or trespasses just as we forgive others. 
that is a really interesting thing that Jesus taught us to pray because in that we're saying, God, we want you to forgive us, but forgive us the way we forgive others. And it's meant to get us reflecting, am I forgiving others? (laughs) And so you realize what you're saying is you're saying, if I'm not forgiving others, then God, go ahead, don't forgive me. That's really what Jesus taught us to pray. Because the problem is when we begin to think, I deserve this, God, I deserve forgiveness, but they don't. The heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ is about forgiveness for those who don't deserve it. Not forgiveness for the deserving, but forgiveness for those who don't deserve it. So I believe that as Christians, we reveal our discipleship and, and our faith journey, really, and how much we are able to do, as our Lord did, and forgive those are undeserving and if we're not able to do that i'd say we've got some work to do this is the people we're called to be forgiving those who deserve punishment this is the people we're called to be those who love those who are unlovable let's pray lord we admit that we are amateurs when it comes to forgiveness we just are beginning to maybe get a glimpse of what it's meant to be and it's one of the hardest things we have to do in our life and so lord we ask that you would give us the strength right now god for those of us who are carrying a burden of guilt and shame for things that we have done we pray lord We pray, Jesus, that you would take those from us and help us to realize the depth of your forgiveness. Lord, for those of us who are finding it impossible to forgive those who have hurt us so deeply, our prayer today, God, is that you would take that from us, that you would give us the strength to forgive and that you would forgive them, even if we aren't unable to yet. We pray this in the name of the one who went to the cross for us, who showed us the path to new life in resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.